Please turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Two kings, two thieves, two outcomes. And we continue to see the sovereignty of God on display. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. And then we'll get to the scriptures, the actual verses that we're going to be focusing in on this morning. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. For again, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. God, I ask for your help as I deliver your message this day that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. God, that you'd give me accuracy according to your word, and you'd give me unction from on high for your glory. I need you at this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. The sovereignty of God continues to be laid out on display for us to see. No matter what Pilate did, or what the Jewish leaders did, God's plan was going to go forth. It would unfold as God had ordained it to unfold. The sovereignty of God in the life of the Lord Jesus and His humanity is probably more evident here than in His entire life on earth up to this point. The final minutes of His trial before Pilate. Pilate had a tremendous amount of power, a tremendous amount of sway. Pilate was convinced that Jesus was innocent. It says it three times in the scriptures we have. Yet no matter what Pilate did, Jesus was going to be crucified anyway. Why? Because God had decreed from all eternity that Pilate would be the one 
to sentence Jesus to death. And there is nothing that could thwart that plan. When God says something is going to happen, it will indeed happen. First point for us, two kings. And we're going to see this paralleled throughout two kings. The last statement Jesus makes to Pilate is recorded here in verse 11. The last thing he says to Pilate recorded in the the gospel of John. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above, from God. And for this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And of course, we looked at this and specifically Caiaphas was responsible, but also those who were there with Caiaphas were responsible as well. And those in the crowd that yelled, crucify, crucify. Indeed, they were responsible as well. And in verse 12, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. Consider that. After what Jesus said in verse 11, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So Pilate still After Jesus made the statement about authority, Pilate was still seeking to have Jesus released. Pilate kept on seeking or made renewed efforts to release him. What are those efforts? The text does not tell us specifically. Yet the fear of man prevented Pilate from taking the bold action needed. Under the sovereignty of God, yet Pilate, perfectly responsible for making these decisions and responsible for uh, ordering the crucifixion. He kept on seeking, though, renewed efforts to release him. But he was fearful of man. He knew that the Sanhedrin could report him to Caesar at any time. We looked at those possibilities, something that had been done before. The comment made by the Jews to Pilate was to remind him of that fact, to let Pilate know indeed who had the upper hand. It wasn't Pilate. It was the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus did allow himself to be praised as the king of of Israel, as we recall from John chapter 12, verse 12 and 13, <clears throat> and this is recorded in the other Gospels as well. But when Jesus entered Jerusalem, chapter 12, verse 12, on the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Not too much time has passed, and here they are calling for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. 
hailed as king to fulfill scripture as he entered into Jerusalem. And here they are saying, crucify him, crucify him. A reminder of a quote from last sermon from Richard Phillips um, follows. Finally, Pilate, he feared Caesar. We, we looked at how Pilate was a fearful man. He feared man and he feared his uh, Caesar, and understandably so, considering who Caesar was. And he feared the Jewish leaders as well, what they could do to him. But Philip says the emperor at this time was the unstable Tiberius Caesar, who was especially suspicious of disloyalty in his servants. This made Pilate susceptible to the threat that the crowd now leveled. The Jews cried out in John 19, verse 12, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. This was a serious threat that Pilate was bound to fear. We know that the Jews had sent complaints to Caesar in the past concerning Pilate. But in this case, word would be sent to the paranoid emperor that Pilate was defending a seditious rebel who set himself up as king in opposition to Rome. Moreover, given what we know about the general corruption of Pilate's regime, he probably feared any scrutiny that might dig up problems in his government that would be awkward to explain. Some scholars think that the term Caesar's friend makes a special official status that Pilate enjoyed. But even if this was only a general term, as is more likely, a report that Pilate was not serving the emperor's interests jeopardized not only his position, but also his life. End quote. So the claims of Christ as king were a threat to Caesar as king or as emperor. John does not want us to miss out on the details of Christ's kingship. Also, the choice is being made here between two kings. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, or Caesar and the ways of the world and the emperor. Which one, Pilate, will you choose? It's similar today. We see with governments across this world that want full control, that want to be the God of the people, and where there is no room from their perspective for Jesus to reign as king. No, they want to be king or having a dictator wanting to be king. But everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Well, Jesus made him out, himself out to be a king, but he was and is a king. He's the king of all. And Caesars of this world do not like this allegiance to Christ as king over all. You see, as a Christian... We don't just say, okay, Jesus is king of my life sometimes or partially or maybe just a little bit. No, he's king of all. And we submit to him. We must obey God rather than man when there is a contradiction there of who we obey. And the world and the leaders of this world that are in opposition to Christ do not like this. When Pilate heard these words, verse 13... 
What words? Well, the words in verse 12. When Pilate heard these things, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard this, he got the message. Okay, now things are starting to change. They threw down the Caesar card, and this was it. He brought out Jesus and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Again, there are differences. Theologians say that Pilate actually sat Jesus down on that at one point, on the, uh, the seat, as a further mockery to the Jewish leaders. But it would be common for Pilate to sit down on the judgment seat and make these decisions. This raised platform, same as in Acts chapter 7, verse 5, this pavement with the seat um, arranged there, Gabbatha, a stone pavement. These two kings, though, this choice he had to make. Verse 14 is important for us to understand as well. It was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So here, the day, the time, and what Pilate said. We need to realize the day, the time, and what Pilate said. The day of preparation for the Passover. The Last Supper being the Passover meal. That was Thursday night, which means Jesus was crucified on Friday. Also, the word for preparation, the day when preparations were performed, were before the Sabbath day of rest. We see this in John chapter 19, verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken so that they might be taken away. So we need to realize the day, the time, and what Pilate said. Behold your king. The crucifixion, as theologians would inform us, when some theologians would disagree and say it was uh, on Thursday, and they make many pains to go that length. But let me read for you this. Um, I believe this is from Leon Morris. What about the time? Let me read this for you. The other problem concerns the time of day. Mark says that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. Here, John speaks of the trial as still not completed at about the sixth hour. Now, Westcott thought that John used the Roman method of computing time, whereby the day began at midnight as with us. The sixth hour thus began at 6 a.m., whereas Mark, using the Palestinian method of beginning the day at sunrise would mean about 9 a.m. by this his third hour. So the argument would be that it's coming from a Jewish perspective or a Roman perspective on the time, which would be the same time, just different ways of saying it. Our vernacular, we would say, uh, maybe we would say 6 o'clock or 5 o'clock in the morning in military time, 0500, I believe it is. So we would say different ways of, of um, letting people know what time it was. However, this is an attractive 
position to consider, a way of explaining it, but there appears to be no evidence that the so-called Roman method of computing time was used other than in legal matters like leases. At Rome, or as elsewhere, the day was reckoned to begin at sunrise. Where a different hour is given, the reference always appears to be at the time since daybreak and not to the interval since midnight. It is more likely that in neither Mark nor John is the hour to be regarded as more than an approximation. And here's why. People in antiquity did not have clocks or watches or cell phones. And they, the reckoning of time was always approximate. Like the third hour. Like we would say church starts at 10.30. Not, not, not 10.35 or 10.40. We wouldn't use that time. We would say 10.30 is when it starts. But people in antiquity did not have this ability. So they would approximate. The third hour may denote nothing more than a time about the middle of the morning. While about the sixth hour can well signify getting on towards noon. Okay, so we look at that. We look at the day being important, the time being important, but what Pilate said is very important. Behold your king. Sarcasm, perhaps, aims specifically at the Jews. Jesus was right there. They brought him out once again, mocked him. Here he was. Behold your king. Pilate believed Jesus was innocent times three. We saw that. He knew Jesus was popular. It was because of envy that they delivered him over to Pilate. Uh, Matthew chapter 27, I believe it is, verse 18. Pilate was stubborn and did not want to give in to the Jews. He did not want to give them what they wanted. Jesus was no threat to Rome. Pilate knew this. Yet the one that he released, Barabbas, the insurrectionist, indeed was a threat to Rome. Pilate gave the crowds opportunity to choose, which may have surprised him when the mob mentality took over. As they shouted, let him be crucified. Verse 15, so they cried out, Away with him, away with him. These two kings that they would choose, Caesar or Jesus Christ as king. Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now for a Jewish religious leader of the Sanhedrin, Pharisee, Sadducee, scribe, whatever it was. Someone to say this, for this to come out of their mouths, was quite a ridiculous statement. They were saying, we are loyal to Caesar and to Caesar alone. They would say whatever they had to, to get Jesus crucified. Yet these leaders spoke more truer than what they knew. James Boyce says, They thought they were loyal to God and hated Caesar, 
but it was the Son of God, God incarnate, whom they were rejecting. So they are actually showing that indeed they do not honor God and instead chose Caesar. In the Old Testament, we find that God ruled Israel through a spokesperson such as Moses or judges or prophets such as Samuel. This is how God designed it. But let's see how oftentimes the people responded. Go with me uh, to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Shortly thereafter, Deuteronomy, you'll find 1 Samuel chapter 8. As you're turning there, something that came into my mind as I was thinking this, this choice of two different kings, practically speaking, as Pilate was going to make a choice, as he chose to deliver Jesus over to the will of the people. This is a decision he could not take back. Once this decision was made, that was it. That was it. And so I would encourage you, as you think of that, he's vacillating, he's pushed into a corner, and he finally, he makes this decision. And as I, as I was encouraging a young man the other day, as we were talking about the things of the Lord, and we're talking about life in general, and I was encouraging him. I was your age once, too. Young men and young ladies, listen up for a moment. This is a complete sidebar, as they say, this is for free. When someone, when you can learn from someone who has made mistakes at 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old, that wasn't raised in the church, not saying that folks who are raised in a church never make mistakes, never sin, absolutely they do. Most, some of them are lost. We understand that. But when you can have someone in your life tell you that's 20 years, 30 years older than you, all of these things, learn from my mistakes. This is what I did wrong at your age. I could hold a clinic on such, uh, such a thing. I could have brothers and sisters in here who could be uh, co-faculty with me. Probably some of you could be the dean of the, the, the uh, university of this. Learning from bad decisions, learning what not to do. So let us not, when we think, oh, I wish I would have made these decisions when I was 20, 21, 22, and I wrecked my life for many years, but then the Lord saved me. And now you can go back and you can say, young man or young woman, learn from me here. And young man or young woman, you listen up to these things and take heed. Save you a lot of grief. Save you from going down roads that you will regret, possibly, for the rest of your life. Praise God that he uses these things in our lives, in our past, that we may minister to those who are there, who are getting ready to make decisions, and we can pour out into their lives. Let us not waste that opportunity either. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel was getting old. The people uh, watched. They wanted a king just like other nations had. 
First Samuel chapter 8, look at verse 5. Well, Samuel was getting old. He had two sons. They did not walk in his ways. Verse 5, they said to him, the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel. They said to him, behold, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in our ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. This is what they wanted. Verse 6, but the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, the Lord says, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and have served other gods. So they are doing to you also. Now, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So here we have the people. They're saying, we want a king. And Samuel saying, this isn't good. This is not right. And God saying, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. Warn them, though. Warn them of these things. Perhaps there is still time. So Samuel spoke, verse 10, all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him of him a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys, and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all of the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. After Samuel had heard the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. They made a choice of which king to choose, and that is laid before us as individuals, and we must choose wisely. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, or the Kings of this world. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, where there is eternal life, or the Kings of this world, which is eternal damnation and death. And as Christians, practically speaking, we serve and we, uh, in His church, and we do church, for lack of a better way of putting it, God's way. Because we serve the King of Kings of the Lord of Lords, or we compromise and we say, no, we're going to do church 
by the way of the world and follow the, the kings of this world, this world way. Decisions to make. Verse 16 of chapter 19 of John. We continue on with this theme, two kings. Pilate did make the decision. He handed him over to be to them to be crucified. Again, Pilate's responsibility, his sin, yet greater sin by the one who handed him over to Pilate. All part of God's sovereign plan. Same verb used of the Sanhedrin when they handed him, handed Jesus over to Pilate. This handed him over. And he did, indeed, he did to them, to their will. To the will of the Jewish leaders and of the people. The Romans, obviously, were the ones who tortured and crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. Pilate wasn't physically handing him over to the Jewish leaders. He was handing Jesus over to their will to be crucified. Luke 23, 25 tells us, and he released the man that they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Look at Matthew chapter 27 as we continue to see the all of these, uh, the synoptic gospels and the gospel of John threaded together to give us the full picture of what indeed took place during this time. Matthew chapter 27. <clears throat> In verse 24, 27, 24. Again, in verse 23, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting the more, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting. So again, mob mentality taken over. A riot was starting now. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. And he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. So here we see Pilate was not as strong as he thought he was. Political power was his God. Much like Caesar's of this day, of that day, of this day. Much like governors then and governors now or politicians as we have today that seek to gain power, and once they have that power, never to lose that power and to do whatever they can to keep that power, even walking into the grave, still holding on to that power, because it is indeed their God. When a person comes in contact with Jesus, they are called to total commitment to him. There is no half-hearted commitment allowed. When the call to enter the narrow gate, there's not a sign next to the narrow gate which says this and this and this is, is not allowed in here. Like if you go to a restaurant, they say uh, no outside drinks allowed or whatever it may be. When you enter the narrow gate, there's no sign there that says half-hearted commitment allowed. Full commitment to Christ. 
is commanded. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow after him. No half-heartedness, commitment allowed. Pilate and the Jewish religious leaders were slaves to their false god of power. They betrayed everything for a false love of a false god. And we can be prone to lose courage or to not have courage when we forget about God, practically speaking. We can live as practical atheists when we do not consider the Lord in all things, in our decisions and what we must do in life. We can lose courage, but when we trust God and we serve him, he gives us boldness in this day. Bold Christians are needed, not people who are embarrassed by the name of Jesus Christ. There's two kings. Choose this day whom you will serve. Jesus or the false kings of this world. There's two criminals. Two criminals. Chapter 19 of the Gospel of John, verse 17. And we're going to be switching. uh, We're going to be going to the other Gospels likely as well. So be ready for this. But there's two criminals. Your text may say two robbers. It may say two thieves. The same word is used there, though, of Barabbas. And as we looked at, he was an insurrectionist. So these were not someone who stole some candy. They were getting capital punishment. They were getting crucifixion for doing crimes that Rome saw fit that they deserved death. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, verse 17 of chapter 19, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. A condemned criminal was required to carry his own cross to the crucifixion. Now, as we study this and theologians study this, they argue for a part of the cross being carried and that the uh, the vertical portion was already in the ground and the large beam of the horizontal was carried. Some theologians would argue that. Some would say, no, it was more of uh, the whole complete cross. Either way, the condemned was carrying their cross to the crucifixion. It was further uh, causing them humiliation and pain, and suffering. And we remember as Jesus was scourged, arguably twice, the second time being the severe scourging, that crucifixion would follow after it, and the the Passover was coming, and the Jewish leaders and Pilate wanted this done and needed this done swiftly. The scourging could have been even more severe than ordinary, and Jesus required to carry this cross, his cross. Many details to what takes place. We cannot cover them all this morning. I'll just touch on a few and hone in on the two criminals. 
John and the other gospel writers state it plainly. Jesus was crucified. The death of Jesus was their main concern. The gospel writers make no attempt to induce crocodile tears or to pull on people's heartstrings. It is a horrific form of death, and Jesus Christ was crucified for sinners like us. There are important details, of course, such as Simon of Cyrene, who was coming out from the country and who was ushered by the the crowd there to assist and carry the cross. We'll look at that more, not right now. Also in the Old Testament, Isaac, a type of Christ in Genesis chapter 22, verse 6, something that we will look at, Lord willing, later as well. But here, for this morning, our focus, the two kings, and then the two criminals, and then the two outcomes. Verse 18, there they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Jesus was not the only one to die that day. There were also two criminals who were thieves or robbers, as your translations may say, but the text means likely an insurrectionist. Same word as Barabbas. Whatever these two men did, they were sentenced to death by crucifixion. When the Son of Man was crucified, the Gospels tell us that the Jews were mocking him even as he was suffering. They didn't stop. It started at the mock trial there with Caiaphas. It continued with Pilate. It continued on the road to Calvary. And here it continues even as he was hanging on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 40. I'll just read these for you. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourselves. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And Luke 23, 35, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. And in Mark 15, verse 32, they said, Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross, so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. So not only were they those in the crowd insulting Jesus Christ who was hanging there and suffering on the cross after being scourged, the two criminals who were scourged and were crucified as well were also hurling insults on the Lord Jesus Christ as he was suffering and as they were suffering. Incredible, the depravity of man on display. And the hatred for the Son of God. In Matthew 27, verse 44, the robbers who had been crucified him with him were also insulting him with the same words. Luke 23 and verse 39. One of the criminals who hanged there, who were hanged there, was hurling abuses at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And suddenly everything changed. Or some things changed drastically for one of the criminals who was hanging on the cross, who was hurling insults at the Lord Jesus Christ. 
What changed? Did he turn over a new leaf? Did he have a, a, a change of thinking? No, God did a supernatural work in the heart of one of these depraved men that day. And Luke 23, I'd invite you to turn there, tells us the details. Luke 23. We get to see a man who was blaspheming God be changed by God and say things that are drastically different to what he was just saying as he was insulting the Son of God. Luke 23 in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there, I just read this, but let's read it again, who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now recall, both were hurling abuses at him. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? There we see the change taking place. He stopped cursing at Jesus his mouth stopped abusing Jesus. A criminal hanging on the cross next to Jesus, insulting Jesus, along with everyone else. In a moment, a change takes place. Regeneration. And look at verse 41. He says, this same man who was, in her, who was hurling abuses at Jesus, he says this, and we indeed are suffering justly. He recognizes his sin. He recognizes what he deserves. He recognizes his depravity before God. We indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. He's seeing the justice that he deserves, the wrath that he deserves. But this man, they're saying, this man, this Jesus, he says, he has done nothing wrong. I submit to you, this is when he recognized Jesus was the Son of God. He has done nothing wrong. And we see this further in verse 42. Look what he says to Jesus. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Nothing here tells us he only said it one time. Jesus, remember me when, when you come into your kingdom. Recall this man was crucified. He was suffering. He was going to die shortly. And he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, what was the response of Jesus? Jesus did not say, sorry, it's too late for you. He did not say, well, you're too far gone. I know what you did there with Barabbas and the others. You're too far gone. Sorry. It was a very late hour for this man. And a side note, one could see this and say, well, there's still time for me. I can just toy around with the things of this world and I can wait to the very last hour and I can make a profession of faith then and everything will be great. You're not promised that. 
You're not promised another moment of time. You're not promised tomorrow. You're not promised that you would leave here. You could die in your seat right now. That would shock us all to the core. If you did not know Christ, you would spend eternity in hell. I have, when I worked for hospice, I've reminded you of this before, but I'll say it again. I have been there with more people than I can remember when they took their last breath, when they were able to say what they could for their last words. And I offered the gospel to a man one time, and he rejected it. He said he was a druid and he believed in all these weird things. And he took his last breath and went straight to hell. And then there's others who the Lord allowed me to witness to as I pushed the envelope indeed because they were stepping into eternity. And you could see them change over days. And they would want you to pray with them. And they would start reading their Bible. And then they would step into eternity knowing Christ. The point is, no one is guaranteed a deathbed conversion. Jesus did not say these things, that it's too late, that he's too far gone, for we know that no one is too far gone. I was too far gone before the Lord saved my life, and all of you who are Christians consider the same thing if you were to look at your own sin. What was the response of Jesus? Look at verse 43. He said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Absence in the body is to be present with the Lord. That criminal who hung on that cross, whose knees would be broken shortly, and who would die an agonizing death, would step into eternity and be with the Lord Jesus Christ. While the other would step into eternity, would face judgment for rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus shows the way to be saved. He says to him, today you shall be with me in paradise. To be with Jesus is in contrast to being against Jesus Christ. You're either with him for him or against him. And Jesus also gives assurance of salvation as well in this one statement. I don't know if I ever saw this before and thought of it this way, but he gives this man assurance. Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. There is no question that this man could fall away. Christ had him and he says, you will be with me. This is indeed the assurance that this man needed as well. How can a change like this take place with this criminal? But by the grace of God. Two kings, Jesus the king or Caesar and the kings of this world. Which one do you serve? Two criminals, both hurling insults at Jesus. And we have the two outcomes, as we just saw. One turned to Jesus one continued to reject Jesus. Two criminals, both blaspheming and hurling things, insults at the Lord, one changed by God's grace, the other left in his sin, 
and continue to deny Christ unto death. Two different outcomes. One turned to Jesus while the other continued turning away from Jesus. So we consider that. I have one more text for you. I'll just read for you. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones has something to tell us. Romans 5, verse 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Late great Martin Lloyd-Jones, some call him the last of the Puritans. He says this, So the cross does not merely tell us that God forgives. It tells us that that is God's way of making forgiveness possible. It is the way in which we understand how God forgives. I will go further. How can God forgive and still remain God? That is the character of God. The cross is the vindication of God. The cross is the vindication of the character of God. The cross not only shows the love of God more gloriously than anything else, it shows his righteousness, his justice, his holiness, and all the glory of his eternal attributes. They are all to be seen shining together there. If we do not see them, we have not seen the cross. Let us pray. Father, as we prepare our hearts to reflect on these things, we're reminded that there are two kings, really. King Jesus and everything else that this world offers that is in opposition to Jesus Christ. There were two criminals that were hung on the cross next to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and died for sinners. The one who died and rose again on the third day and ascended on high. And he calls all men, women, boys, and girls to repent of their sin and to believe in him for the salvation of their souls. And we see that one of the criminals on that cross turned to Jesus that day. We thank you, O oh Lord, that there are hope for those who are young and there is hope for those who are taking their last breath, who would turn to you. We ask this day that uh, you would help us to consider these things and these two outcomes, eternal life or eternal damnation. Thank you, O Lord, for the cross. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. That we may know you, that we may be known by you, and that we may walk with you. In Jesus' name.